This morning we are continuing our sermon series in the book of John and we come to a passage that is probably one of the most beloved. Um, There is great, great truths to be found in this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well. I mean, really, the list goes on and on to explain things we can learn about our perfect Messiah in this passage. One being that um, he would go to reach those who would be otherwise forgotten. Um, that he would go to low places to find those who were lost, but ultimately those who he would redeem. That we see in this passage the Lord thirst and it demonstrate his humanity, his perfect humanity. Um, we talked a little bit about that last week. And so uh, this morning what I'd like to do is not so much examine. There's going to be a, a portion that we examine. There's going to be a portion that we skip over this morning just because the portion that we skip is going to require a, a lot more time than we can do in one sitting um, because I'm fairly certain you don't want to sit there for two hours. Um, so So uh, what we'll do this morning is we will examine the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And the following week, we will look at the the question that she asks in regard to worship. Uh, There is something very, very important that we have overlooked, and it is that um, God has a prescribed means by which he desires to be worshipped. And so next week, we will examine that that idea. But this week, we come to really a culmination of the first uh, three chapters. Uh, Time and time again, we're met in the book of John with speaking. Uh, with John the Baptist in particular, speaking about Jesus being the one who can give the Spirit without measure, Um, meaning that as Jesus comes, he has the ability to bestow and grant the Holy Spirit as he so chooses. It isn't something um, that he has to like kind of work out. Instead, he can give it as he so chooses. And so it's an incredible moment where we come to a real demonstration of that. And we find this in this incredible story of a woman who Jesus really, from a, from, a, from a norm background, should not have been having a conversation with at all. And so if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 4, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, my friends, this is going to be a long reading, which means that more of the service is infallible. Isn't that good news? Okay, good news. Uh, so let's examine John chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. But here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, we come celebrating the fact that what we read here is true. No mixture of error, that it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. And so, Father, as we come, we bow humbly before its authority, trusting that you have an intention for it this morning, Lord. It is the only comfort of this preacher that your word will always accomplish its purpose and will never return void. And so, Father, as we come, we ask you to bless the preaching of your word and certainly bless the reading of it. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. So as we come to the passage, just to kind of give you a little bit of a background on how we do things here at Mercy Hill, we like to give a sermon in a sentence. I have recently been told that I do not leave up the sermon in a sentence long enough, so today I will. Um, so the sermon in a sentence is this, the perfect Lamb of God gives the gift of the Spirit without measure and without border. Um, this passage really is a culmination of many things that have already been discussed in the Gospel of John. Almost to the point, as we've made reference a couple of times, that John tends to write in a theological sequence, not so much in a chronological sequence. His intention is to, is to clarify a certain point, and then normally what you kind of see happen is he gives a, a conversation, a sign, a miracle, something of that nature to clarify so that the people may actually see and understand what everything, I mean, everything that John was just talking about. So to read it one more time to you. The perfect Lamb of God gives the gift of the Spirit without measure and without border. Um, and the without border here leads us into the first point, which is really just setting the Samaritan scene. Um, really, as you come to this passage, for us to understand it in full, we have to, we have to understand the Samaritan people in general. The Samaritan people were not well loved. To give you a little bit of a breakdown, the Samaritan people um, are products of a, a captivity that took place a long, long time ago. The Assyrians came in and, capt it and captured Samaria. When they captured Samaria, they essentially um, deported all of the Jews out. And, and the ones that were left were ones of kind of ill repute. They were not the ones that would really serve much purpose to the Assyrians. So they just left them there. But they also settled the land. 
And so Assyrians brought in foreigners, and what took place over a period of time is the Jews and the foreigners began to intermarry. And and really what you have here is a production of what the Jews would refer to as half-breeds. Which half-breeds, even in our own day, in our own days, is a wild, it's a, it's a rough terminology, and it should be, and it's meant to rub you the wrong way a little bit here. Because what you have is a great disdain for the Samaritan people just because of the fact that they are not of pure Jewish blood. There is a very clear racial skew here. They, they are not fans based completely and totally on the fact that there was intermarrying and it caused friction. But not only that, there's some friction here politically. Politically, the Samaritans and the Jews are kind of grouped into the same camp by Rome. They, they just call them all the same thing. And you can imagine if you dislike someone as a whole, you don't want to be in their camp. And so what you have here is they're being thrown into this camp. And so they do everything they can to avoid them because they don't want to be seen or associated with the Samaritans. But not only that, we have a religious issue. Because in 400 BC, um, the uh, Samaritans decided they were going to build a different temple. And they were going to build this temple on top of Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is a really interesting place because uh, it's where the blessings of obedience would be read all throughout the Old Testament. They would go to the Mount of Gerizim. They would read off these truths, these blessings. And so the Samaritans said, what a fantastic place for a temple. And so they built a temple there. Now the issue with that is the Jews are all saying it's in Jerusalem that we worship. That's where the true temple is. That's where we're supposed to be and to worship. And the Samaritans say we have a temple right here. You can imagine the frustration that the Jews would have with the Samaritans. I mean, it's literally a threefold frustration. You have uh, religious frustration, you have political frustration, and you have racial prejudices. They are not people who mingle together. And so that's one major background that's important. Secondly, it is the place. Notice if you look into um, verse 1. Uh, forgive me, let's start in verse 5, actually. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, Sakar is a pretty interesting place because uh, it kind of finds itself camped right in the middle of two major, major places in the Old Testament. One is Shechem. Now, I, I'm not trying to give you a huge uh, uh, geography lesson here, but Shechem is very, very important. Shechem is the place that as uh, Israel or Jacob at the time was leaving, um, laboring for Laban to get Rachel and Leah. He goes through Shechem and as he goes through Shechem, Rachel buries her gods there, her idols. It is the exact same place where a couple of years later you'll find Joshua making that grand statement, choose this day whom you will serve. And he, in this exact same way, you can almost imagine him making a gesture to the place where Rachel would have buried those idols and saying, you have to make a decision whether you will choose to follow the God of Israel, the one who has brought you out of captivity, or you can serve the gods of your pagan fathers. Perfect view of that place. Not only that, but in uh, about a hundred yards away would be Joseph's tomb. I mean, imagine the stock that the Jews and the Samaritans placed in Joseph. They loved Joseph. And on top of that, Samaritans tended to reject every book of the Old Testament except for the, uh, the first five books, the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They held in high regard Joseph. That was their treasure. And so when we get to a point in this conversation where she looks over, I imagine, to Joseph's tomb, she said, are you greater? Are you greater than Jacob? So this morning, as we consider those things, I would like to point out a couple of other things just to kind of give a little bit more background. Jesus is unknown here. 
This is very, very important for us to understand because you can imagine as Jesus' earthly ministry is progressing forward in Galilee, Jesus is well known. He's the man who turned water into wine. He's the one that they kind of saw those things take place. And even as we consider the fact that not only has Jesus turned water into wine, but he had gone into Judea, flipped tables over and performed many miracles. This man's notoriety is rising rather quickly, but in Samaria, not so much. In Samaria, they have heard very little about Jesus because they didn't have any dealings with the Jews. This conversation perhaps had not reached here yet. And knowledge is actually a very important theme that we'll find here. So uh, Jesus is completely and totally unknown. Then let's consider this woman who he has this conversation with because it really causes us to even stoop a little lower in the conversation. So Jesus goes to Samaria, this place that is absolutely despised by the Jewish people as a whole. And he has a conversation, but he doesn't have a conversation with just anyone. He has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Notice this in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, let's just consider for a moment that in this particular day and time, for a a man to speak to a woman was not something that was traditionally done. Not only is this just a woman, it is a Samaritan woman, and we'll find out in a couple of minutes that not only is it a Samaritan woman, it's a Samaritan woman of ill repute. There is no business for a prophet to speak to a Samaritan woman of this caliber. It is all of grace that this conversation ever starts. And that's the major thing I'd like to point out from verse 7. You see, when we look at this passage, we very rarely spend much time to consider just the first phrase, give me a drink. Friends, God is always the initiator of the relationship with his people. In this particular conversation, this incredible moment where for all intents and purposes, the actual interaction should be something along the lines of Jesus sits down at the well, the Samaritan woman is there, and she sits very, very quietly, never saying a word unless she is spoken to. And yet Jesus initiates the conversation. Give me a drink. Had he not done this, they would have simply passed by each other. But instead, what you have is this grand initiation from the Son of God looking and saying, give me a drink. And friends, from this, the whole conversation takes place. I want you to understand that this one statement, give me a drink, leads us into the understanding that not only was this woman saved, but the vast majority of the people that heard the message that she proclaimed was saved as well. It is because God initiates relationship that we have any means of celebration. We have any reason of celebration. Consider, if you would, all the way back into Genesis chapter 1, friends, if you would like to ponder for just a moment or even consider that maybe you initiate something in regard to your relationship with the Lord, consider the fact that he created you. At bare minimum, you must be created to have any relationship. Not only that, but Philippians would make it abundantly clear that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is God who initiates, and in this particular case, we see the Son of God initiate a relationship, initiate a conversation with a woman who should never have even been considered. And so what is this conversation? What exactly is said? So the first thing that we have is an if-then statement. I love if-then statements. They are so clear logically, and they do not require much explanation, but I'd like to give a little. So... In verse 10, as the conversation continues, it says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the if statement is this, um, If you knew the gift of God first and who it is that is saying to you. So ultimately, Jesus is looking at this woman and saying, Because of the ignorance, ultimately you don't understand, you don't know who I am, you're not asking me these things. Friends, we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to understand who Jesus is. Can you consider for a moment who comes to Jesus apart from knowing who he is? 
Friends, it's by God's grace that we come to this revelation, but it is also because we actually can hear below because of the message of others and also because of the holy scriptures that we can know these things. And so the if-then is so important here because if we don't have the if, we will never have the then. You must know who is speaking and you must know what the gift of God is. And should you know those things, you would do this. It continues on in verse 10 and says, You would have asked me, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this is where the conversation begins to spiral a little bit. Because she understands what's being said to her. Ultimately, she's understanding that this guy who is speaking to her is not some average prophet by her perception, but is instead someone that has a little bit deeper of a claim. He is not a minor prophet by any means. There is something unique about him. And so how does the conversation continue? In verse 11, it says this, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? The first thing she does is question the ability. The very first thing, she looks at him and says, you don't have the ability to get the water out of the well. Like you're telling me that you have living water to offer me. If I knew who you were, if I knew the gift that you're talking about, you're telling me that there's a better offering. And she looks at him and immediately questions his ability. Now, I'm not going to make the practical application of, friends, there are so many things that we begin to question the actual abilities of Christ to deliver on. I mean, his promises are vast, are they not? I mean, his promises are that you will actually be delivered from sin, that you will have eternal life. The major premise of the entire book of John for the state of the believer is eternal life. And it could be an easy question that might erupt in our minds to say, are you able to deliver? Are you actually able to bring about what you promise? And this Samaritan woman, I think, captures it perfectly and looks at him and is as honest as she possibly can be and says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You don't have the ability... And, and that's the first charge that's brought to him, brought to, her, brought to him concerning her. And then the second thing that we'll see is what you offer better than what Jacob offers. We're going to answer these questions in a minute. But I want you to see the concerns here. And I want you to understand from the Samaritan woman's perception, there actually isn't anything better than what Jacob offered. She's going to a well at noon. She's doing it time and time again. Not only is she going to well, it signifies that not only was she one of ill repute, but she was also poor. She didn't even have a servant to go do these things. She had to do it herself. She labored day in and day out. And so she's thinking to herself, can you possibly offer me something better than what Jacob offered? Jacob offered this well. Jacob offered the law. Jacob brought all these things about. He is the chosen one that would bring about the nation of Israel. And, and here we sit and we're still in need, but nonetheless, can you actually offer me something better? This is the grand question that is constantly asked of Jesus. Can you actually offer me something better? This is one reason that a weak and frail understanding of the gospel is so offensive because the only means by which God will provide something better than what the world offers is not that we offer people a moralism. It is instead that we offer them redemption from their sin. The true gospel has to be offered. Or it actually isn't better than what the world has to offer. And so should Jesus have come and offered her some type of water from a different source, perhaps a different well that he dug, it is not a better offering at all. Instead, he is offering her something far better. And so the two questions that are immediately asked of the son is, do you have the ability? Are you able? Which is a question that we must ask as well. Secondly, is what you are offering better than what Jacob offers? So let's examine then what exactly um, the son is offering. So if you would look at verse 14. I'll start in verse 13. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of the water, of this water, will be thirsty again. I love this because the first thing he does is identify the weakness of what she's saying she has such value in. It's this well that, I, I mean, this is, this is what is offered to me. It's, it's great. It's grand. It's a, it's a well. It's a, it's a means of provision for me. And, and Jesus looks at her and says, it actually doesn't provide you much at all. It's a well. They're all over the place. You can come and you can certainly get water from it, but ultimately you're going to find yourself walking back up this hill, going and, and, and taking a bucket, dropping it down into the well to pull it back up, and you're going to do it again tomorrow. Very likely you're going to do it again today because thirst really doesn't cease. He says, this water that's being offered to you, it, it's, you're still thirsty. Is it actually providing anything for you at all? And so what do we find here? Instead of seeing Jesus just going straight to the point, he at first is, is points out the, the flaws in the system that are, that are already there. Yes, it's a good thing, but it is not something that is actually grand. It is not a gift of God. The gift of God is something far greater. And then he begins to unravel that. So in verse 14, it says this, But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The first thing I want to point out to you about this living water is the first thing that Jesus points out about this living water. I will give it. Friends, I have said it time and time again that the, every benefit of the kingdom of God is found in union with Christ. It is his to offer. If you do not long for Jesus, then there is no living water for you. It is his to give. It is his provision. And should we think that we, 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 might, we might have living water apart from Christ, then we are fools. It is only in Christ that the living water can be offered. It is only in him that, we, that our thirst might be perfectly satisfied. I would like to point out too as well that the reason that we can find this statement so perfectly stated here is because of a, another statement that will be found in the future. Friends, he experienced eternal thirst at the cross of Christ that we might never ever experience the anguish that inspired the phrase. He said, I thirst. He experienced the deepest possible pain so that he might offer us living water that we might never thirst again. It is his to give. It is only his to give. To give everything that we've looked at leading up to this point is leading into who is it that can give the spirit without measure? measure. It is the Lamb of God that John proclaimed. Behold the Lamb of God. He is able to give the spirit without measure. He gives it. Man, what grand privilege is it I, that the one whom we, who rescued us is the one that bestows on us every good and perfect gift. The beauty of having a, a, something that would satisfy a need that is ever-present in our lives. I love that he uses this particular language because, friends, there is nothing more, more demoralizing than thirst. I mean, have you ever perhaps been on a jog or something where water is a little bit too far away and you feel that and it nags at you? It nags at you, in my opinion, far greater than hunger ever would because you need something. You need it to satisfy not only your belly, not only to give you energy, but you need it simply to satisfy your mouth. You think about passages like Psalm 22 where it's made reference that Jesus' tongue was sticking to the top of his mouth. What a horrible indicator of the true thirst of his soul in, in, in the midst of eternal anguish. And here we have him looking at a Samaritan woman, somebody he should not be having a conversation with at all and saying, I can provide for you water that you will, because of it, you will never thirst again. And it is to the cross he will go to provide that for her. Given by the Son and by the Son alone. In verse 14, let's kind of consider the substance of what we're looking at here. So, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
never be thirsty again. I, I like this language, and, and I think really, um, more so than, uh, than anywhere else, um, you, you see this, this, this satisfaction of the need. I mean, consider for a moment what it would mean to never thirst again, to never experience that longing in your soul that, that there's something missing, there's something I'm dependent upon. But what you're looking at here is not so much an argument that you'll never have or experience thirst, but the argument is that you will never have it not be satisfied. If you consider the language here, it goes on to say welling up to eternal life. In verse 10, if you knew the gift, sorry, forgive me, verse 14, that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. There is an eternal source that will satisfy your thirst. One of the major issues that, that I found in this passage to deal with was the fact that still in the Christian life, there seems to be this great hunger, but the hunger changes and the hunger is always satisfied. I'm not alone in this. There are many commentators that agreed, in particularly Calvin, that made the point that it is not so much a satisfaction of the desire of thirst, it is a satisfaction in the provision of what will satisfy your thirst. The beauty is, friends, that the Christian life is not one that voids you of your desires. Instead, it gives you new desires and provides everything that you possibly need to meet that desire. The beauty of this Samaritan woman at the well is you find her having this conversation and being offered this eternal, this, this, this incredible source of water, this incredible source of, of life ultimately. And she says, this is, this is far better when all of a sudden she's, I long for this. And my prayer for us is that we understand that the desires of the Christian life are not meant to be pushed down. Instead, the Christian life is, is driven ultimately by affections. We have robbed, we either rob or we glorify the affections. It, we need to have a happy medium here. We rob it and say there should be no affection here. There should be no longing in your heart. But friends, that's folly. And if we say that it's meant to be the, the sole focus of the Christian life, then we rob truth very likely. The beauty is that we should have an affection. The affection should drive us. There is a strong desire for water and Christ has provided it perfectly and eternally by the Holy Spirit of God indwelling his people. The beauty of his provision. It is eternal. It is perfect. Now, the question is, what is, uh, and so she looks at him and says, okay, give me this water. I love this because I think that the vast majority of people, when confronted with the fact that there is something better, will actually say this because they're not actually desiring the one who would grant the provision, but they are looking for the provision in and of itself. Very likely, you will have had a conversation with someone who has experienced guilt, and perhaps you're having a conversation, an evangelistic conversation, longing to see them come to faith in Christ and you offer them forgiveness of their sins in Christ and in Christ alone they look at you and they say that sounds good forgiveness of my sins forgiveness of my trespasses they can think of various sins that they feel so guilty for and they say I want that and that's exactly what this Samaritan woman does look at verse 15 the woman said to him sir give me this water why did she want it so that I will not be thirsty. First, she desired its effect. She was sick of having to climb that mountain. She was sick of having to go and to get water time and time and time again. She wanted freedom from that. Not only that, but she was sick of the labor. There was great labor in doing this. I mean, can you imagine carrying uh, a bucket to go and get water and then carrying it back down? There's no telling what she would need it for. Perhaps a bath, perhaps to wash clothes, or perhaps to drink. But ultimately, she needed not only a little bit of water, but a great deal of water for her needs. And so she says, I don't want to have to come up here anymore. I don't, I, I don't want, I want the effect and I desire rest from my labor. That's, that's what I want. 
And Jesus looks at her instantly and challenges her. I love the fact that Jesus does not give her a free pass here. Instead, he gives her an incredible challenge. He says, look, I know what you're saying here. I know you desire the effects of this, but there are actually things that must take place in your life to lead you into not only enjoying the effects of that living water, but enjoying the giver of the living water. And so the first thing that he does is he, call, he asks her to call her husband. Immediately, this is a challenge because she has to then look at him. And, and, and it's interesting that she does this dodge thing. I, we do this, right? So look at, look at the language. Uh, Jesus says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. I mean, she's thinking she's going to slip by. She's uh, sneaky. But instead, he immediately looks at her and he says, you were right. And can you imagine the juke in this conversation? Like she thought she slipped by and instantly Jesus looks at her and says, yeah, you're right. You have no husband, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. This is where we see the, the true depravity of this particular woman. Not only has she had so many husbands, now she is prostituting herself out for a place to stay. I mean, this, this is the person that Jesus is having a conversation with? Is there not a better option? We'll answer that question in a moment, but... To consider, he just looks at her and challenges her. He says, you have to confront your sin. You have to get rid of that which is, which is hindering you from longing for the true and better water. So not only does he tell him to call your husband, then he answers her theological question in verse 24. Uh, let's look at, um, yeah, yeah, in verse 19 it says this, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, fantastic. Um, Verse 20, our father worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place to wor- where people ought to worship. He, she begins to ask her a theological, he begins to ask, sorry, words are hard. She begins to ask him a theological question and he answers the question and, and, and she's baffled by the answer. She's thrilled by the answer a little bit, I think, because she says, There's, I don't want to have to go to a certain place any longer. And then she, she says this and says, okay, look, I, in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. He's just done that. And so what he does is look at her and he says, I who speak to you am he. The answer to the first question, if you knew who was saying to you has just been answered. See, the, 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 the issue here is ignorance. Immediately, she realizes, I have not had an encounter with a prophet. I've had a, an encounter with the Messiah, the one who I've been longing for, the one who I've been waiting for. Immediately, her intellect has been enlightened to the truth that she is sitting before Messiah, that he is answering her question, and he has just offered her living water. I love what we see here because there is an incredible effect Notice verse 28. Remember her intention, by the way, in coming up to this well, her intention was to get water. In verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, So the woman left her water jar. Now, there are many that argue that this is making a mountain out of a molehill, but I strongly disagree because I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired every word of the Scripture. And if he made reference to make it abundantly clear to John that he should clearly include that she left her water jar, it is an indication that what she once longed for, to climb this mountain to draw water, has been satisfied. No longer is her intent to draw water. Her intent is to immediately proclaim the fact that she has tasted better water. She is looking at the Messiah. She has been offered better water. And I'm convinced that what you find in this simple illustration of her dropping her water jar to run down the hill to proclaim, come see one who has told me everything that I have ever done is the clear, the clear 
next step of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We are fools should we not look to this Samaritan woman who was the pagan of pagans. Not only was she a pagan, she was a hypocritical pagan. On what mountain should I worship? Don't sin over and over again should be the simple answer here. She's living in rebellion and asking theological questions. She's thinking that perhaps I can cover myself here. Instead, she says, no, no, no. He says, no, you you have to repent. You must taste this living water. It's far better. And when she finally comes to the conclusion that the one who's standing before here is actually the Messiah, she says, I got to tell somebody. I've tasted and seen that he's good. I've tasted that he, he can point out to my sin. But can you imagine the grace that he had in his conversation with her, knowing that he is simply sitting there offering her living water, yet simultaneously pointing out her sin? The grace of God, even in this small conversation, is so clear. Why would he not simply turn away from her and go to someone else? Because he came to seek and save that which was lost. He will save that which was lost. And it is so incredibly interesting that he comes to Samaria and the first great conversion that takes place in Jesus' day is not the Jews, it's not the Gentiles, it's the half-breeds. It's the ones who everyone hated. And so what takes place? Immediately in verse 28 it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Immediately they hear this language. They, they knew who the Christ was. And I want you to understand, kind of going back to this, just to make a point about the first five books of the Bible, they rejected the prophets. The Christ was clearly taught in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They understood there was one coming. She knew who Messiah was, and they knew who the Christ was, and they knew it from just the first five books. And so they look there and they say, man, many, uh, they ran to him. And in verse 39, we see this very clear statement. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, just to kind of clarify and perhaps bring this uh, full circle, I want you to understand the distinction that we have in this conversation, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Because there is a very clear contrast here. Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He perhaps would be the most highly esteemed, not only in his simple circle, but should he go anywhere, people would revere him to some degree. And he would be well-informed. He would be intelligent. He was one who hated sin. He was one that, should Jesus look at him and attempt to point out sin, very likely the one that he would point out is self-righteousness. Indeed, that's the one that he particularly does. And this particular woman, a woman of absolutely, the, the reputation is astonishingly bad. He looks at her and he says, I am the one who can offer you living water. And I want you to see her response because it's different than Nicodemus's. It's completely contrary. The woman has an absolute need and she sees that Jesus can meet it. The beauty of this particular encounter is should we understand that Jesus can provide the need, he will actually provide it. It goes back to that question that we asked earlier. Can you provide? The language that we find here in the very first statement that he makes, it says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. It is not a question. It is not an if. He is able and he can deliver. And my friends, despite whatever sin is present in your life, despite whatever, maybe it's self-righteousness, maybe it's the fact that you think coming to Mercy Hill Church on Sunday morning is able to say, friends, you are going to be sadly mistaken on the day of judgment for only having this living water from the Lamb of God is able to save. And it knows no boundaries. It knows no boundaries. If the Samaritans can be saved, then friend, anyone here who repents and places faith in Christ can be saved. 
Not only can they be saved, but even the most poorly educated and those of the most ill repute can run into a village and share the good news. It's not based upon the character of the giver of the news. It is based on the ability of the gift. And by God's grace, he has given us a grand message that should we taste and see that he is good, should we experience that living water that wells up to eternal life, we will, out of necessity, share that good news. And I would make this argument real quickly before we close. That saints, should you argue that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that you have that well springing up into eternal life in your soul, and yet your mouth can be very, very quiet amidst a very clear gospel presentation, I must ask, have you tasted it at all? There's nothing in this world we're silent about until it comes to the gospel. We will talk about and share the best possible news with any soul that will come in contact with us. But should it be time to share the good news of Christ, very often our lips are still. Living water, tasted and enjoyed, demands action. It's very clear. Faith without works is dead. This Samaritan woman had been converted for all of 15 seconds. Sprints into a village and shares the news. And what we find is that Samaritan village comes to faith. So my prayer for you, saint. I am talking to you, saint. Lips cannot be still. They cannot be. We cannot say that we've tasted that the Lord is good and not long to see others taste that incredible source of water. And for those in here who do not know Christ, this water is only offered to you through him. Only. It is not, it cannot be found anywhere else. You can look for any source that might, you might think satisf- will satisfy your soul, but you will quickly be mistaken. It is only in Christ that this living water will be provided. And yes, there will, he will create in you a unique thirst and he will provide for it at every single turn because that living water is residing in you in the promised Holy Spirit of God. So I urge you this morning, would you taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you look to him and taste that living water?